about the church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, happy Mother's Day again to you moms. Uh, hope you're having a great day so far. Uh, we are um, kind of an exciting day. We're wrapping up a 18-month uh, sermon series. So uh, the Gospel of John is going to uh, come to an end uh, today. You never have to read it again. Just kidding. Uh, it's uh, the end of the road in one sense, but not really, of course, uh, like much of biblical narrative. Uh, it ends in a very open-ended way. Some of you might be aware of this. We'll look at it today, actually. But uh, the Gospel of John purposefully does that, I think, to remind us that the, the story of John becomes our story. It, it's, it's sort of, um, it's not a firm bookend of like, you know, nothing can happen after this uh, in, in, in any capacity, but that the same things kind of keep happening and keep impacting lives uh, throughout history as the gospel is preached and, and churches are started and so forth. So, um, Let's just dive right in. Today is John's epic epilogue from John 21, 20 to 25, the final six verses today of, uh, of the gospel. Actually counted, today is the 74th and final sermon in uh, the gospel of John. So, so here we go. Uh, verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. That's, the, that's uh, the John who wrote this and the, the, uh, the disciple John. This, is, uh, this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So a cool way to end a book, isn't it? I mean, any book, a gospel account especially, it's uh, odd maybe in one sense, not in a bad way, uh, but odd is indifferent uh, from the other uh, three gospel accounts. In fact, I want to start with just a word on that. Uh, word on the diverse nature of the four Gospels' conclusions. So I hinted at this a little bit last week if you were here for that, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all end differently. They all have as their climax the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is important. So they're all the same in that way. But in terms of what happens after that, they differ. Uh, so if you think of like uh, plot diagrams or story arc diagrams, uh, this is what we call the falling action after the climax. And all four gospel accounts tell that part of the story a little bit differently. Not in contradictory ways, but in ways that emphasize different things. And that's actually a really good thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It, it testifies to the historicity of this, to how it actually happened, to how it happened to real people who experienced things a little bit differently and so who wrote down things maybe a little bit differently. Uh, and not, not to mention the theology, which I'll get to here in a second. I want to say a few words on that uh, as well. But just to remind you or just to let you know, for the first time, don't know how they end. This is a really short summary of how the, each four of them conclude. Uh, Matthew ends with the Great Commission when uh, Jesus calls the disciples to make disciples and to teach and to baptize, which is an early hint at Jesus' heart for the starting and sustaining of churches. Uh, Mark ends with, the tr with trembling and fearful women who were at the tomb and who fled uh, after the angels told them Jesus was alive. And it says they, they went and were afraid and they spoke to no one about it. Uh, Luke ends with the ascension 
of Jesus, the, the disciples worship Jesus, which is obviously a, a, a claim to Jesus' deity. He's the son of God. And it says the disciples were really happy in that moment. They had joy. And, and that whole story leads into the book of Acts. The book of Acts is kind of like a part two to the gospel of Luke. And so Acts begins with the ascension as well to kind of purposefully uh, overlap them and link them. And then John, uh, as we saw last week, is kind of a part one of, of two here, and this week's kind of part two as we end, this, uh, end the book, but it, it ends with an intimate conversation between Jesus and Peter, a call to belief in Jesus, and a word about a world full of books uh, about, about Jesus as well. All right, so uh, the, the point to this uh, is to uh, simply to know this, you know, and and it's uh, not something everyone uh, knows necessarily or or maybe remembers, but as you think about the end of a gospel or that falling action to a climax, sometimes when you're in that part of the story, uh, especially when you're kind of a part of the story, one of the questions you might think is, well, what does this have to do with me? And is there something I should do in response to it or not? Or what what should be happening to me, uh, maybe, uh, or what's normal? Uh, for the Christian life? Those are all great, great questions. And the point here is to consider taking all four of them together at once and and to avoid emphasizing one of them over and against the others. Uh, But sometimes that's what what happens, especially in the evangelical world. uh, Usually it's Matthew that gets emphasized because Matthew's ending is more concrete. It comes with something to do. This happened and now do this. And so it's easier to measure whether or not our lives or churches are moving in the direction of it. Uh, but the four Gospels together describe better uh, what the normal Christian life is like on this side of the empty, empty tomb, which many times is quite varied. Um, you know, so like if we were to all get in a circle and just share our stories or survey, kind of like, what has life been like for you since you became a Christian? Um, have you suffered or not? Uh, what's been your calling? What are some of the spiritual gifts God has used in you to build up the church? Uh, our, you know, marital statuses are different. You know, our families have looked different. Uh, some of us have depression, anxiety, you know, uh, more, more than others. Um, but it's, it's just like you, we could talk for a day, right, about how our stories as Christians, our lives look very, very different. And that's actually part of the point. It's normal. And, and the different epilogues of the four Gospels uh, kind of testify, uh, testify to that. In other words, your Christian life is not the gold standard of Christian lives. Uh, and, or maybe think of it this way. Like the, the other Christians that you tend to compare yourselves to, uh, their lives are not the gold standard for Christian living. There is no gold standard for a Christian life uh, other than belief, ultimately. Everything outside of that is just going to look different. Even with Matthew in mind, not everyone disciples people uh, the same way. Not everyone, most of you haven't baptized somebody, right? And so to look at Matthew 28 and say, that's a command I have to do, I have to baptize people, is impossible for most people. That's mostly a job for pastors. And so Matthew's point is not to say, this needs to look the exact same way for everybody. I mean, no Christian has ever ever lived that way, but we can tend to do that sometimes uh, when we emphasize one over, over the other. All right, more to say about that, but let me just kind of say this then with the uh, kind of the conglomeration or the mixing of these four together. What, um, what does the Christian life normally then kind of uh, look like with all four of these things speaking to it? If I were to write it out in a paragraph, I, w- I would say this. 
it says the normal Christian life is about grace coming to us in spite of our fear and doubts and sin. It's about him, not about us. It's full of worship and great joy and blessing from Jesus. It's sharing good news with others, building up the church. And yet, sometimes the Christian life is kind of mundane and open and unclear, because it, or, uh, but it includes waiting and dying or not, and lots of leaning on Jesus. All right, that leads me to this next section today, which is kind of the, the meat uh, or the gist of the passage, this conversation then that Jesus is having and continues to have with Peter. But now they kind of lump in John, who's following them, and Peter turns around and says, Lord, what's going to happen uh, to him? So remember last week, if you weren't here, Jesus just got done saying to Peter that Peter's going to die. He's going to be crucified. And with his death, he's going to glorify God. And, and that happens, and then we kind of jump in here in verse 22, or 21 rather. Peter says, what about John? What's going to happen to him? What's his destiny? And uh, Jesus answers in verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Uh, you must follow me. All right, so that's kind of contextually what's happening here. It's really interesting that, he's, that this is happening at all in, in one capacity and that the Bible cares uh, to speak to this especially in an epilogue. All right, so a couple things. First, uh, this is just a really crazy passage, and I mean that in, in a mystical, uh, amazing, kind of who speaks like this kind of way. Uh, if you look at what Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive, then that's what's going to happen. Like, this is, these aren't the words of just a guy. You know, this is the Son of God demonstrating his power and his might and his control and his ability uh, to guide all atoms and molecules and circumstances. Uh, it, it's the words of someone who knows the future. Uh, it, it's the words of someone who's already been to the future, who is the future. Uh, and, and again, we don't talk like that as human beings because we're very, so very finite and limited and obviously don't have that kind of uh, power. But this is a demonstration of Jesus' omnipotence and his complete sovereign control over all things, even the details of our lives. The statement, if I want him to remain alive, tells us, uh, then he will, it tells us that he is stronger than death. It tells us that he is the one who determines who lives and who dies and when. Revelation 1.18 are the words of Jesus when he says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. I'm the one that, that unlocks all of your days. Like we don't think in those terms, we just wake up and turn off our alarm, our alarm clock and have breakfast. But actually what's happening there is Jesus is actively unlocking life for us to still breathe and for us to, to move and have our being. Like that is not a random uh, natural thing that's occurring. It is his enabling of that life to happen. And when we die, he knows when, he knows the circumstances, and it is not out of his control uh, either. He's the one who determines who lives and who dies physically and, and spiritually. So, now you might ask, well, why is that really important? It's important because a bad stretch of luck does not have the final word on your life. Jesus does. Karma does not have the final word on your life. Jesus does. A terminal illness does not have the final word on your life. Jesus does. Nor does any dark angel. Uh, Jesus has you in his arms, come what may, and he is over literally all things. And that's just something for our encouragement. That's something for us to bank on, to believe in, to rest in, especially when we suffer and life doesn't go the way we want it to, which is almost every day, right? 
Um, and so, but, but Jesus is good in this. He's not just providential and sovereign. He's the epitome of goodness as well. When those two things are blended, um, it, is, it is the, if there's a magic pill there, if, for anxiety uh, or for worry or, or for fear, um, th- then that would be it. doesn't mean that it always goes away in this life. Of course it doesn't. But, but that is um, uh, what Jesus, who he presents himself as and what he has to give us um, in our fear. Okay, uh, that's, uh, I want to acknowledge that, kind of set that to the side, and kind of dig deeper into this conversation. This passage shows us a lot of things. It shows us that um, as, as much as of a factor as community has in the Christian life, Jesus also sees us and saves us as individuals. Okay, so I started to kind of broach this last week as well, and it's continuing today. And uh, it shows us that Jesus has different callings on our lives as individuals after we're saved. Jesus' words here to Peter help us understand that our concern should be with following Jesus. It should be with Jesus himself more than comparing ourselves with others, especially other other Christians. Uh, And that's maybe most clearly what Jesus is saying here to Peter. Don't worry about other Christians' lives and and don't uh, compare yourselves with them. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Pastor Peter preached a sermon uh, where he used the phrase, uh, comparison kills joy. And I want to tack on to that. That was really well said, and, and it's uh, true and good and beautiful and worthy of tons of rumination. I want to tack something on the front of that just to say that grace is the thing that kills comparison. The, the, the grace of God, believing that we, we are give, given to um, when we're in an unfavorable state even with God, when we are still sinning, uh, when we're given to when we don't deserve it, uh, that, that kind of idea, uh, that principle, that power, that characteristic of God dismantles and destroys comparison because grace has nothing to do with our works, nothing to do with our circumstances, and nothing to do with our response to it. It's given freely, impartially, and surprisingly, even to those who aren't seeking for it. So, so Jesus here, when he's kind of like taking Peter and lovingly reorienting him away from John and focusing too much on the destiny of another Christian's life circumstances, back to himself, back to Jesus, uh, he's, what he's doing is he's saving Peter and us from questions like, did I do something wrong to deserve this? Or maybe worse, did I do something right to deserve this? But such questions flow from law, not from grace. Uh, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes uh, says things like, uh, sometimes the good die young, and sometimes the slow win the race. Uh, if you've read this book, this is King Solomon's like end-of-life um, collection of sociological phenomena uh, or proverbial wisdom where he's, where he's saying, Look, as an old man, this is just what I've seen. Uh, the strong doesn't always win. I don't always know why that's the case, but uh, sometimes the eight seed beats the one seed. And, you know, sometimes the team that, that never wins all of a sudden wins. Sometimes the tortoise beats the hare. And it, it, it doesn't seem like it's natural or it, like it ever should happen, but sometimes it happens. And, and more than that, sometimes people who are more morally upright than other people, they have worse lives and they die quicker than people who are wicked. And no matter what you do with that, at the end of their life, they're buried right next to each other. Here lies a bad person, here lies a good person, and they're both dead. 
And, and Solomon is saying uh, this, is, this goes against how we normally think as people. We, we normally think that our strength, our determination, our righteousness and morality dictate things. Or that our strength, our practice of a certain sport or of debate team or trivia or whatever, that the, that the more we put in, the more we get out. Sometimes that's true, but why is it not always true? Why is it not always true? And Ecclesiastes exists for many reasons. It's a profoundly complex book. Uh, But Ecclesiastes exists in part for this reason, to poke at our graceless views of the world. It pokes at our grace light or graceless views of the world and how we tend to look at things as though we earn them and uh, what we put in we get out. And God must be that way too, we think. If we just live a good life, then we'll be rewarded, right? If we, or if we become a Christian, won't God make our lives just wonderful and, you know, flowing with all kinds of blessings? Well, why doesn't that happen? The answer is yet again, grace, 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 grace. And so if we start to then analyze why these things uh, are the case according to human strength and effort and morality, we'll drive ourselves mad because they don't make sense. But when we rest in and centralize God's grace that God gives to us unconditionally and in spite of ourselves, that he allows us the eight seeds to beat the one seeds uh, sometimes, uh, then just because he loves us and just because he wants to be a generous God and love us in spite of our sin, then all of a sudden things like this start to make more sense. If, if grace, in other words, if grace runs the universe, we're going to see this happen actually quite a bit. If there wasn't such a thing as God's grace, we would never see this happen. The strong would always win every single time. The, the one seed would always win, the, the, the beating the eight. The two would always beat the seven right down the list. If it, were, if it were tit for tat, if it were about us completely in our works, um, then Ecclesiastes would be wrong and the grace of God wouldn't be a thing and we'd all be lost in our sins. But the good news is we see that grace interrupts the score It interrupts our attempts at being good people, and it shows us that goodness ultimately comes from outside of us, not within. And so that's the invitation here. This is kind of a scenic route, I realize. I'm going back, back to John now just to say that when we rest in and centralize God's grace, when we realize we're given to all the time that blessing, life, and gifting comes apart from our works, then these types of things and outcomes and apparent imbalances in life um, start to preach good news to us. It, it, it tells us that grace upsets the score and grace helps us to compare less than with each other and receive more. David Ford says about this idea in this passage actually and comment on it. He says, the future is Jesus. Speculation about timing or about what might happen to someone in particular is discouraged. Instead, there is a gentle but firm insistence on the primacy of the desire of Jesus and on his freedom to act in ways that his followers are not able to anticipate. Instead of knowing such things, the emphatic Jesus-centered imperative is, follow me. And I especially like this idea here that uh, David Ford mentions of Jesus being free having desire, first of all, but being free to act in ways that his followers are not able to guess 
or anticipate or predict. Uh, This is textbook Christianity right here. Uh, The idea that it's so much about the work of God and not ours that God's work in our lives is often hidden from us. It surprises us so that yet again we we can't take credit for it nor are we expected to do something about it. When I preached uh, out of John 3, like a, a billion years ago, uh, months and months ago, we, we looked at this idea of, of being born again, and we looked at this idea of how in order to be saved, we need to be blown upon by God. Uh, this is a very disarming thing for Jesus to talk to a Pharisee, a law keeper, and to say, in order to be saved, um, you, you need to do something that you can't do. That's basically the, the synopsis of the, of the conversation. You can't, be, and that's actually what Nicodemus says, remember that, where he's like, well, who can do that? Ah, you're starting to understand. It, see, if we don't have that, that moment as, as Christians or not, of people that, that in, the, in the face of what it requires to be saved, if we don't say, well, who can do it? We have not fully understood. Because the answer is you can't. No one can be born a second time unless they're blown on by the Holy Spirit. Unless God does it. Uh, then it can be done. And so we talked about how the wind of the Spirit is indiscriminate. It blows where it wants. We talked about how we're loved just because we're loved, and and we put many other words to it. One of the things I said, though, is the the essence of the Christian gospel works against the natural flow of things. It, It works against the flow of our accomplishments and expectations. John 3 says that Salvation comes like the wind. It's something we can't see or touch or anticipate or capture. All we can do is wait for it and pray that God would come to blow in our direction and allow us to see what he did on the cross and through the empty tomb and put our faith. That's something he needs to do, and he does. And when we ask him to do that, to open our eyes to that, um, he always says yes. God never says no and never has and never will say no to that prayer. Uh, but that posture of open-handedness, uh, understanding that just like the wind can't be captured, um, nor can we, uh, or neither can we uh, encapsulate salvation uh, in the works of our hands, we, we must defer to Jesus. We must defer to Jesus. We must defer to Jesus. And, and so we, we come to believe this as Christians, but it remains true the rest of our lives as well. So that, that's why... Uh, I think John ends this way. Or that's, this could be anywhere in John, and we'd be, I'd be saying the same thing. But uh, John 21 reminds us that this is a lesson God has never done teaching us. And here's the lesson. Your salvation and your very life are not up to you. Not just your salvation. Everything about your life, ultimately, is not up to you. God loves you too much to leave it up to you. He is, like he's saying here to John, I know exactly what's going to happen to him. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to tell you. But that's not your worry or his. I'm in control. And whether it's through suffering or comfort, whether it's through an early death or a latter death, I will lead you to the end. This is exactly what he says to us, you guys. Exactly. This is exactly his love, exactly his control. His salvation alone is not what he's in control of. He's in control of every aspect. He's good, providential, loving, and he wants, because this comes after the cross, us to understand that even these post-cross or post-empty tomb or post-conversion 
experiences of life that we constantly are living, those are in his hands as well. And so, the invitation is to believe in him, follow him, look to him, trust him, wait for him, and again, defer all things uh, into his hands. All right, that leads to this last section, which is um, verse 20, actually the last verse. I'll just read it again. A world full of books and a savior to lean on. It says, um, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. All right, so it's a really interesting image. And again, uh, kind of a fantastical you know, almost, it's almost a fantasy genre, you know, it's this, it's this um, hyperbole in one sense, obviously, but still this very high view of Christ and high view of his works um, and what he did in his life. And he says, if they were like literally written down by a scribe, there'd be mountains of books literally everywhere, everywhere in the world. The seas themselves, the oceans would be full of these books. And even then, uh, they couldn't contain uh, the, the, the glories of Christ. And so it's a really cool, really cool image. Unless you don't like books, then it's like, a, if a phobia of books, then it's hell. But it's a really, really cool uh, image here that John ends, decides to end with. And I would say um, it's not just a quantitative thing of like mountains of books. It's also an image of qualitative uh, books in the sense that Jesus' works are otherworldly. We just don't see works like his in, in life unless they come down to us from heaven, which is another way to say we don't have goodness in and of ourselves unless he decides to live within us. Uh, we don't have power to save ourselves on this earth. It had to come from beyond the sun. Uh, and even then, the, the, it was almost like it was too much. If, if the earth was a cup, it would be overflowing, uh, not just to the brim, but overflowing with the works of Jesus, not our works. Uh, but, but the works of, of Christ. And so that's what it's saying. His, his works are too many, or maybe you could say too abundant, uh, to have room on the earth. But I think that's the point. So if you were to ask like, the question, kind of back up here and get the 30,000-foot view and ask, how, does it, how is this gospel really ending? What really is this image that we're being sent home with. If this was a sermon, this is the last thing the preacher says, and this is what you're thinking about on the ride home. Like, why is this here? And what is this image really meant to, really meant to convey? What's the final word? And I, I would say, like, if you think about ourselves in this, like, the good, like, how long would the book be if someone wrote a thing on you? You know, like, a, a book on your, like, I think, like, the, the good that we have done in, in life is very finite. It, it could easily fit on a cheap pamphlet you might find in a hotel lobby or something. Like, that, that's, that, that, that's what we get. Uh, but John takes us elsewhere. John takes us to a world of a trillion books that are all about Jesus' works, and not one of them has even a sentence in it about ours. That's the image we get. It's all about Jesus' works. There's not nothing in there about you. Isn't that the most humbling but most amazing thing? and most relieving thing you've ever heard? It's not about you. And so, so John ends with this state of like, almost like he's being, he, he's just being covered by the, the, the loving works of Jesus. He's reading, they're kind of collapsing on him. He's gazing at a mountain of them over there, and, 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 it's, it, and, and that's what we're left with. Now, now to look at it in a, in a slightly different way, it's interesting, and, and I'll kind of twist the diamond here in the light uh, a little bit, yeah, to say this, this isn't 
the only book of the Bible that John wrote that ends with mention of books. Does anyone want to know what the other one is? It's the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, which the apostle John wrote, uh, in, in the last couple of chapters, John says, our works actually are being written into a book. But it talks about it in terms of judgment, so it's not good news. Uh, it says this is about, it's a future picture of what judgment will be like, uh, that God will raise the dead um, and there'll be a great uh, judgment. And, and it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne of God, and books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. All right? So, world full of books about us, uh, not good news. It, it, it means judgment. Um, but the good news is, one, Jesus' works outpace ours. Two, we're not judged on our works. We know, uh, we, we talk a lot about that, even did today. But three, in context, there's another book. And the other book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is not deeds, but, does anyone know? Name, exactly, names. Not what you've done, but just your name. Have you believed or not? That's it. That's the crux. And that's the book that will ultimately determine who remains alive with Jesus on the new earth forever and who is thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell. Look what it says. Another book was opened, though. Thank God there's another book, which is the book of life. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so lots to say here. Let me just say this. Our hope is not that the book of deeds will reflect well on us, See, if you thought that, you'd just be working your fingers to the bone, trying to outbalance all the bad you've done, and, and hope that maybe the scales will tip in your favor. Maybe, just maybe. That's not your hope. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the complete opposite of that. It's saying, if left to our own devices, if we are judged in the book of deeds, everyone goes to hell. The hope is that there's a second book, another one altogether, not with deeds in it, not with impure thoughts, not with disbeliefs or doubts, not with our addictions, not with how much we took advantage of grace. None of that. But instead, it's just a book with names. And our names are written in on the basis, they're written by the blood of Jesus Christ, on the basis of our faith, on the basis of his love, not on the basis of what we're able to do for him. That's how the Bible ends, not just the gospel of John. This is how the whole thing comes to a head. Even there, and especially there at the end, it's saying, this is the crux of the matter. Do you believe that Jesus died on a cross for your sins or not? That's it. That's the golden standard of the Christian life. Everything else is up for grabs. Everything else is in Jesus' hands. Uh, even that moment is too, of course, but everything else really post that might differ in our lives and will differ. All of us will have different callings and destinies, um, but what this is saying is the works of Jesus are the thing. If you, if you want to be about deeds and, and marry th these passages with the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus' deeds are what matter most, not ours. And one of his deeds is saving people who did bad deeds and who trusted in their good deeds because we're saved equally from the bad we've done 
uh, as we are, the good we've done that, did, that didn't proceed from faith. It, 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 the, the good we did that we thought was to our credit. Jesus bled for those as well. And he says, I am alone what matters. Follow me. Follow me. Look to me. This is also why uh, John ends, I think, with a parenthetical uh, kind of reminder for us that he was the one who leaned up against Jesus at the Last Supper. Now, in in a storytelling sense, I don't know what you guys think when you read this. For me, this is always, whenever I read this, this is always a thought I have. It's kind of uh, snarky, I'll just warn you. But it feels a little bit forced. I I think, uh, yeah, John, I get it. It's you, you know. you're unnamed, but we know, we know it's you, you know? And, 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 I, and I remember the Last Supper narrative. So why did you just, it was like two chapters ago, three chapters ago. So why did you just take 23 words to point us back to a previous story that seems to have no reference to this one? Well, theologically, so a storytelling sense is one thing, but theologically it makes all the sense in the world. John is the one who leaned back against Jesus, and he wants us to remember that. John is the one who physically leaned up against, his, against Jesus' physical body at the Last Supper, a couple hours probably before Jesus was arrested. So Jesus then, if you picture that moment, Jesus is the support, right? If somebody's, le- somebody's leaning against something, like if I'm you know, leaning against this thing, it's holding, holding me up, right? If you're leaning against a pew, it's like, that's the thing that's like bearing the brunt. Jesus is, he's called the cornerstone elsewhere, uh, similar idea, but he's the one being pressed upon and laid upon is, is the thing. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is, is the, this is a prophecy of Jesus 700 years before he lived. It's, it's like all throughout the Bible, history, all throughout the plan of God, all throughout the different genres of the Bible, Jesus is the laid upon one, laid upon by us, by our sins, so that he might bear it and, and save us. That's, that's the point. Like, Aletha and I will watch a show sometimes, and she'll lean against me, and sometimes I'm in a weird position and it kind of hurts and so like so so like so so I'm like I'm incur, I'm incurring the suffering right like in that moment it's small but I'm incurring some suffering but but I'm glad to do it because I love her and I it's fine um but this is the idea right that what the laid upon one is a little bit more uncomfortable than the layer it's it it it, it is these things are here for the sake of our instruction and our encouragement. This is not happenstance. This is not random. It is extremely significant that Jesus did not lay on John. Extremely. Christianity, this might sound like a small detail, like, oh, that could have happened and everything would be fine. Actually, no. It It would cut the pillars out from underneath the gospel if that were ever the case. Uh, Jesus is the one who's laid upon. He is not the layer upon. He's the one who is foregoing comfort and suffering so we can be comfortable. To follow the pattern in in 2 Corinthians 1, as Paul talks about. All right? So he's incurring the suffering to hold us up. 
This is what the Gospel of John is about. And because it's at the end, especially, we, we underline it. In our sin, we lean against him without being crushed. We crash against him. We collapse in our spiritual exhaustion in our attempts at saving ourselves. But we are upheld by his strength and love nonetheless. Maybe that's another way to understand this uh, parenthetical inclusion and, and why it serves as such a helpful final word. And I'll make this my final word uh, today in, on this sermon and on the whole series. John hasn't changed pre-cross and post-cross. He's still the unnamed disciple who's leaning against Jesus, putting all his trust in him. And you haven't changed either, uh, really, nor have I. This is part of the point. We don't stop leaning. We don't all of a sudden get strong when we become Christians. We stay weak and we stay in need of his grace. And the fact that John ends kind of open-endedly tells us the story, this story, continues. For the last 2,000 years, and maybe for 2,000 more, or whenever Jesus decides to return, the story of his mighty works will fill the earth. Jesus will offer his body as a sacrifice for sins, and people will lean against him in their spiritual exhaustion, and they will always be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this gospel, and thank you for how it ends. Thank you that the end of the story, the end of the matter, has much more to do with you than it does us. Uh, This is, in a lot of ways, the normal Christian life is that there is no normal. The normal Christian life is that grace comes to us whatever our lot, uh, whatever happens to us, however long we live, how much suffering uh, we, we endure, uh, our, our gifts, our, our, our destinies, how, how we're used in the church to build it up or to evangelize the lost. Um, it, it comes in spite of fears and doubts and bad days. It's a constant. Uh, Jesus, you are called the rock, the unchanging rock of ages for this very reason. Uh, we, are, we are changing. The, the world itself and our lives moves like mad, but you are unchanging, you're faithful, you're a constant and that constant is your love for us. And um, I pray that you would, God, by your spirit, grow us in these matters. Uh, forgive us our sin. Make us new. Um, help us to lean against you all of our days. Uh, and forgive us for not. Um, but thank you that your love, is, it comes unconditionally. And, um, and always like a flood, like a fountain. But always against the normal flow of things. It comes against our works and our expectations. Like salmon up a river. Uh, jumping up a river. It's just always a surprise, and, um, and we thank you for that. Uh, we, we praise you for it, actually, and pray to help us to leave here encouraged. In Christ we pray. Amen.